all December we've been in a series called There's Just Something About Christmas. And there is, right? There's this magical time of year. These 25 days where we do stuff we never do at any other time. You're driving through at night and you see all these lit trees and houses and we're going to parties and making merry and singing these songs we only sing in December and there's more joy and optimism in the air and people are just nicer, aren't they? Uh, except in mall traffic. I had three people give me the finger this week in mall traffic. <laughs> and I was processing that and, I, and it was probably my fault, but I was processing even when Jesus comes, two things won't change. The line at the DMV and people angry in the mall at Christmas. It's just amazing. But, uh, but there is this joy and optimism and all these traditions. And the question is, where did they come from and why do we still do it? And when I think we know the answer, it's Jesus, right? Whatever you think about Christmas, and even for those who don't believe in Christmas, you're kind of locked in. Because when you wake up on December 25th, it'll be December 25th. 2019, and very few people will ask the question, 2019 years from what? And we know that Christmas, when God entered the world, and whether that was the date or not the date, it doesn't matter, something very profound happened. God became part of us, Emmanuel, God with us. He became part of creation. The creator became one of us. And it was so altering that we changed time. We mark it now by his birth. And so as we enter into Christmas, we've been talking about all these traditions and the things we enjoy and do and love. And every week I say it's a mixed bag, right? So we have this colossal commercial Christmas, like this trillion dollar retail holiday. And uh, then we have this unique spiritual side. And, and, and hopefully this will free you a little. Believers have struggled with this, you know, for 2,000 years. Uh, if you read the Puritan writings, uh, legends like Cotton Mather would rail against Christmas. But then John Bradford would love Christmas, and he wrote many letters about how he enjoyed it. Uh, the German preachers would rail on it, but Martin Luther loved it. And the same thing happened in England, and the same thing happens here. And it's kind of weird, right? You know, for those of us who follow Christ and love the scriptures, you know, maybe you're in the car and you have this holy moment. Oh, holy night comes on. And you listen to the lyrics, and it's about the incarnation and God becoming man. And you're thinking, wow, this plays all over stores and street corners. And if you get into some like second stanzas of these songs, it's incredible. And, and you're having this holy moment and like the next song is Mama Got Run Over by a Reindeer, <laughs> right? Which, has anybody ever thought that through? That'd be like a real first world problem if that really happened. And uh, so we have this mixed bag and we have the spiritual side of Christmas, the cultural side of Christmas. I think if we're honest, we kind of enjoy it all, don't we? You know, there is this magic about Christmas. Um, but Jesus is the reason. Uh, someone said if you took a super magnet and, and everything in the world that either Jesus started or his followers started was metal and you took a super magnet and took all that metal out, there would be little left. Um, Nietzsche, who was the famous atheist, was asked the question, how come there are no atheist celebrations? How come there's no atheist songs? How the, you know, atheists have none of these grand traditions. And he said, you know why? He said, the reason why is because the solar system is empty and life is hopeless and there's no life beyond the grave, so there's nothing to celebrate. And you think about that, it's very sad, and yet God has put something within us. God has something, done something amazing. God with us, Emmanuel. So in our series, I've saved the best for last. I don't normally do this. I want to talk to you today about one of our grand traditions, the songs of Christmas. 
There's all these songs we listen to and we love. And just to get the blood flowing, just for a minute, turn to your neighbor, tell your neighbor your favorite Christmas song. Just a couple seconds, your favorite Christmas song. Not your top 10, your favorite song. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> How many people said, oh, holy night, that I've already referenced? Yeah. Second stanza, he knows your need to your trial. He's not a stranger. Wow, that's great theology. Uh, how many people, God rest ye merry gentlemen? Anybody? Listen to this line. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's the born again experience. That's great theology. Uh, any Amy Grant fans out there? Tennessee Christmas, anybody? That's your favorite? Yeah. Uh, we're in church. Nobody's going to shoot you. The ushers aren't going to get you. Anybody really like Grandma got run over by a reindeer? Uh, the songs that I love, there's a song that I hate. I can't believe I'm going to say this. I didn't say it in the first service. That Justin Bieber Christmas song, I want to like pull out the, the, the radio in my car and like throw it away. But again, there are annoying songs. There's good songs. This morning, I want to take you in Luke chapter one to the first Christmas song. And what's ironic about this song is Jesus hasn't even been born. The author is Mary. Uh, she freestyles it, uh, it's not pre-written. And it's in response to the news that she receives from an angel that she's gonna be the mother of God. And it's so staggering that she's gonna deliver this child that she's told to go to Elizabeth. Elizabeth's in her family and she goes to Elizabeth and Elizabeth has no prior knowledge, and when she sees Mary, she says, when, you know, why is it that it's been granted to the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who believes, for these things will be fulfilled, which was told you by the Lord. And then she says, when you entered the babe, and this is John the Baptist, leaped in my womb. Now, you have to see some of the comedy in all this. Uh, Mary's a virgin, she's probably 15 years old, a teenager. She's with child, she's going to Elizabeth who's 80. The Bible says she's well stricken in years. Luke wants us to know he's a doctor, this is a miracle. Uh, 70 wasn't the new 50 at that time, 60 wasn't the new 40, she's well stricken in years. What a pair they make. She's gonna have John the Baptist, Mary's gonna have Jesus, this is unbelievable. And she said the babe leaped in my womb. Uh, we live in a day where we argue where does life begin? And uh, as believers, we believe life begins at conception. Jeremiah, God said that he crafted each one of us in our mother's womb, that we're more than DNA and bodies, that God breathes into every, every human being the breath of life. And so if a babe can leap in the womb, I think there's life there. It's one of the verses we never look at. And she said, these things will be fulfilled, which were told you by the Lord. Now, Gabriel in chapter one has appeared to Mary. And Gabriel tells Mary four things. The first thing he says is, fear not. I don't know if you know this, number one command in the Bible, fear not. You know why? Because we're so fearful. We're so filled with anxiety, we're so filled with fear, and especially when God asks us to do something. Imagine being Moses. You know, he's gotta go to Pharaoh, the supreme leader of the greatest superpower in the world, and say, let my people go. And all God gives him is a rod and a staff. And he's got Aaron, and he can't speak. And then God calls a series of people to do things. Abraham's gotta leave this beautiful life in Mesopotamia uh, and become the father of a new nation. 
And the story goes on and on and on. The prophets were called to do great things. And now Mary is asked to have this child. And then the angel tells her this. You have found favor with God. Isn't that beautiful? So many people think God's angry with them. And God is angry at the wicked. He's angry to this regard that they are not receiving the free gift of his love and salvation. But, but we don't meditate enough on the things that God thinks of us. We have found favor with God. Uh, I know God does this because when Job went through his trial, there's a scene in heaven that Job could never see nor hear. And it's when God says to Satan, have you considered my Job? There's none like him in the land. God's bragging on Job. Job can't hear it. We can't hear it. The curtains pull back and the angel tells Mary, you have found favor with God. It's beautiful. And then he says, you will conceive and bring forth this son. His name will be Jesus. He'll be the son of the most high. He'll sit on the throne of his father, David. Listen to this. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary says, how can this be? Now, it's not the voice of doubt. She's pondering all these things in her heart. This is hard. Uh, but she says, how can these things be since I do not know a man? Now, Luke is setting up so we would know that this is a fulfillment of a 750-year prophecy by Isaiah that he would give Israel a sign that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son, we'll call his name Emmanuel. Uh, what would this child look like? Uh, behold, unto us a child is born. So in Luke chapter 2, we're going to get all the blood and guts. This child was born, but a son was given. See, from heaven's perspective, a son was given. From a human perspective, God became man, blood and guts. And so you look at this, and you think, well, how can this thing be? Well, God was doing something supernatural. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and that holy thing in you will be called the Son of God. Luke uses that term 23 times. Supernatural. There's two things you can't fake. A virgin birth and a resurrection. Now, we think the people in the ancient world were stupid. I don't know why. They built the pyramids. Uh, if you've ever been to Israel and look at Roman cities, they built harbors, they had aqueducts, and they didn't have what we have today. They had no computers and no modern equipment, and they got the job done. These were really smart people. And you couldn't hoodwink anybody. If anybody knew anything back then is when you're dead, you're dead. And no virgins conceive. And Luke's writing this down so we would know that everything here was miraculous. And the angel tells Mary, for with God, nothing will be impossible. With God, nothing's impossible. And we need to hear that. And Mary needed to hear it. Why? Because she's 15 years old. She's poor. When they go to the dedication uh, for Jesus, they bring turtle doves, which the poor would bring. She lives in Roman-occupied territory, Palestine. The temple is corrupt. The priesthood's corrupt. There's no Ark of the Covenant. And there hasn't been a word from heaven in 400 years. The last prophet to write was Malachi, and he ends by saying, where's the God of justice? Do you ever feel like that? Where's God? People think that all the time. Christians think it all the time. We look at what's going on in our world, and things are upside down, and we say, where's God? And sometimes in our own little lives, when people get sick or die, like, where's God? Like, God fell off the throne. And what you need to know in this story is God is always working, always on the move. Mary has no idea, Paul would write this in Galatians, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
At the exact right time, God was bringing his son into the world. Why was it the exact right time? Well, God was working behind the scenes. First of all, raising up the Roman Empire. Uh, the Caesars, with now Caesar Augustus in place, had Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There were no known wars for uh, quite a long period of time, at least Jesus' ministry. Uh, transportation, most of us know the uh, Romans built roads, much like we have the internet today, so the Magi could travel from Persia, and at Pentecost, believers could come from all over the world. Uh, language, the world had a common language, kind of like English today, Koine Greek. And God is setting up something Mary has no idea about, that it's the perfect time to bring forth his son under Roman rule, why? So he could be born and die on a cross, fulfilling another prophecy. Isaiah 53, that he would be bruised for our iniquities, pierced. You know, it could only be Roman crucifixion, which didn't exist when Isaiah wrote. And God is setting all this up. And, and here's what you and I need to know. God is the grand weaver of history. He's weaving an amazing tapestry, not only in our lives, but in, in the greater good, the greater world. And it's all moving to a place. History really is his story. And even when you think he's not on the move, he is and he's working on your behalf. Now, what we're going to look at, Luke chapter 1, verse 46, Mary's response to this is a song. She breaks out and begins to sing. Uh, we call it the Magnificat. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You guys know this. For he has done great things for me, and behold, generations shall call me blessed. She goes on and on and on. And Mary is just singing, and there's joy in her heart, and it's just beautiful to watch. And as we get into this, I want to say one thing. Uh, language and the ability to sing, we all know, is unique to human beings. It's what sets us apart from everything on the planet. But, but even within the evolutionary world, this is one of their big struggles. They have no idea why humans sing. It really doesn't help the evolutionary process uh, to sing, you know, language makes sense. And then the way we're designed is fascinating. So everybody in here has a larynx, right? We have a, a, a voice box. It's one inch square. It has nine cartilages, six muscles, and a ligament suite. And in that ligament suite, there are two ligaments, we call them vocal cords, that when air passes through, uh, we speak language. But if you had the teeth, the tongue, the roof of your mouth, and all those things, we can effortlessly sing. And again, it makes no sense. It's like tears. We know tears wash the eyes, right? But again, science has no understanding why we have emotional tears. They don't benefit. And neither does singing. And we know why, because God has put a song in our heart. God has given us a way to express emotion uh, beyond any other thing, and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And if you don't believe it, think about this. When do we sing? Now, if you don't go to church, you rarely sing. I don't know if you know that. We get to do it every week. Every week, think about what we do. We sing together. It's wonderful. And there's studies that it's actually good for you. It opens up the arteries, and uh, there's a lot of medical benefits, like kind of like laughter. It's good medicine for us. But uh, when people do sing, it's usually um, in times of joy, Right? Times like Christmas celebrations or Easter. Uh, maybe you get a promotion at work. You go in your car and you blast the radio and you start singing. A baby's born. Uh, today, when the Eagles, or I shouldn't say when, if they score a touchdown, <laughs> they'll sing that silly little song. 
uh, mainly because they're joyful, but also because they're pretty drunk at that point. Uh, but they will sing. And we all sing at times where there's great joy. And Mary bursts forth in joy. Not only for what God is going to do for her, but what he's going to do for the nation and for all the people who will ever come. A Savior, Christ the Lord, is about to come. Mary, about to bring this child into the world. And singing's been always part of our story. Uh, when Moses takes the children of Israel through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies join, his sister Miriam gets the tambourine. First worship leader in the Bible, a woman, begins to sing. And then Moses sings. There's a song of Moses. And, and you see all these songs in the Bible. And then the Psalms come. That's the song book of Israel. And Psalm 150 says we should make a joyful noise unto the Lord with instruments and with our voice and make melody in our heart in the New Testament for all that God has done. And we sing on Sundays and we sing on Wednesdays. And Revelation 4 says around the throne of God one day we will all sing. And we were born to sing. God put eternity in our hearts. And so Mary now begins this song. And when we look at the song, I think there's some things that Protestants can learn from Catholics, and there's some things that Catholics can learn from Protestants. Mary is a big figure. We know a lot about her, though she appears very little in Scripture. So um, as we learn about this song, what can Protestants learn from Catholics? Well, Catholics have elevated Mary pretty high, probably too high. But notice what she says here. She says, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, a maidservant there is the lowest slave in the house. Again, poor. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Now, anytime I ask people to raise their hands, how many of you were ex-Catholics? We usually get about 75%. I'm not going to do that today. Then we have double dippers. People come here and then go to the Catholic Church. That's okay. Um, but with all those types of people in the room, did anybody belong to a parish or go to a school that was called BVM? Anybody? Yeah, it was mostly women. Sam in the back today. That's impressive. Um, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And you think about that. That's what she's called. And she says, generations will call me blessed. And we've been calling her blessed for 2,000 years. That's a lot of generations. If you wanted to disprove the Bible, you could disprove it right here. First of all, the odds of a woman in the backwater part of the Roman Empire in a poor town making that statement that it would ever be recorded is ridiculous. The idea that the Bible is even recorded is a miracle in itself, the preservation through wars and history. Uh, we have very little, little literature from the ancient world. In fact, much of what we have, the monks copied, secular and sacred. We only have 10 copies of the Odyssey, 10 copies of the Iliad, 24,000 fragments of the New Testament. Luke, one of the great historians in all of history, preserves her writing. How audacious is this? Generations will call me blessed. 2,000 years. Staggering to think about. This little girl, 15 years old. And you have to think about what she's signing up for. You know, the angels appear to her and say, Mary, you're going to have the Son of God. You're going to write a book about it, go on tour. You're going to be a Christian celebrity. You'll be on TV. Everybody's going to know your name. This is wonderful news. She's signing up basically maybe to be a single mom. We don't know. Maybe Joseph will put her away. Uh, 
she will remain poor. Uh, not only she, but Jesus will have a reputation. There was a time where the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, you're teaching us and you were born in sins? We know that Joseph dies at a young age and then Simeon, when he holds Jesus in his arm, looks at Mary and said, a sword will pierce your soul also. This child is born to die. The beautiful thing about Mary, and this is what we can learn from Catholics, is she fulfilled her calling to the fullest. Carried it out with wonder and majesty. And, and it's startling because she's 15 or 16 years old, but if you look at this song, the depth of her understanding about God and who he is is marvelous. In these short little verses, she makes 20 references to the Old Testament. This is a girl who had no Bible. Put to memory from the Psalms and the prophets, she begins to say things like, God has done wonderful things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him, and all generations will call me blessed. But I want to draw your attention to what Catholics can learn from Protestants. She starts by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced, listen, in God my Savior. So Mary knows something that uh, we know little about today is that we're spirit, soul, and body. You and I live in a world through advertisement, the checkout stand, at the Acme and so forth, where all they tell us is about the physical body. What we look like and you know, our heart health, and we should drink shakes, and, you know, we've got to look younger, and, you know, grandmoms can't look like grandmoms anymore. They've got to look like supermodels at 60 years old. Everything's outward today. It's what we wear. It's what we drive. And Mary says, no, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We're spirit, soul, and body. And there's something beyond the physical, she said, that's important. The soul is what unites us. It's what makes us whole. And she says, my soul magnifies the word. The word magnify means to, to, to proclaim majesty, to meditate on, to think about it. The idea is like she constantly had God on her mind. Dallas Willard said, if your soul is healthy, no external circumstance can destroy your life. Think about what all the martyrs and Christians have endured through the centuries. He said, if your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstance can redeem your life. We're not redeemed with gold and silver and metals and money, but the precious blood of Christ. Jesus said, what would it gain for a man if he gained the entire world, the richest man in the world, but lost his own soul? One author said, in America, we're nations of big bodies and little souls. So I want to ask you at Christmas, what's the state of your soul? Are you in touch with the inward reality of who you are? When you're alone, do you understand who you are? And we spend so much time drowning out our inner world. We have earbuds now, we watch TV, and we almost always need noise. We're almost afraid to be with ourselves. It's a beautiful thing about my daughter going to a convent is no one talks. And it's eerie, I've done it, I've been on silence retreats, it's really eerie in the beginning, but all of a sudden you start to deal with an inner world, a soul. It's the state of your soul this Christmas. And Mary says, she rejoices, listen, in God my Savior. She's not the queen of heaven. 
There was no Immaculate Conception. Even Catholics are confused by this. Catholics think the Immaculate Conception, the rank and file, that it was Jesus born without sin. No, the Immaculate Conception in Catholic theology is that Mary was born without sin. Because the idea is how could Jesus be born without sin, so now Mary has to be born without sin. Now, you'd have to keep going down the line, right? The angel said the holy thing that's in you, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. But Mary was a sinner. She was a sinner like everyone else. She says that she needs a savior. Elizabeth said, how could the, the mother of my Lord visit me? Elizabeth knew that the child Mary was having was God. That's Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, put the, I'll put this up on the screen. Maybe you want to take a screenshot of it. Uh, this has been quoted so many times, nobody gets credit for it. Uh, this person said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But your greatest need, my greatest need, was forgiveness. So God sent a savior. That was our greatest need. The Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what that Greek word all means? All, right? All have sinned. From the highest person, the holiest person you can think of to the lowest, all have sinned. It's the hardest thing to convince people of. And Mandy doesn't, uh, excuse me, uh, Mary doesn't exclude herself from this category. God, my Savior. Uh, we see her in the book of Acts, in the upper room, with the 120, waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall. She's not the queen of heaven. There's no immaculate conception. And you can't pray this prayer, Holy Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of death. She can't hear you. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. Uh, when I was in Catholic school, they always said, if you really want something, don't pray to God, go to Mary. It's like going to your mom, and she'll kind of go to Jesus, and you'll kind of get an end round. That doesn't work, all right? Amazing in her calling, but a woman just like us. And by grace, we are all saved. Now, verse 49 to 52, we'll, we'll go through this real quick. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. I don't have time to go into all this. Read chapter one, read chapter two. Luke is one of the great historians who has ever lived. You know what Luke's doing? He's showing us there's three perspectives in this narrative. There's Rome's perspective, there's heaven's perspective, and there's Jerusalem's perspective. And what Luke's doing is he's showing us the mighty and the powerful and the rich. He writes more about leaders and rulers. He gives us more dates and times than any other writer. And he wants us to know this really happened and these people really existed. And he talks about the aristocracy and all the people in power. Chapter 2 begins, the Christmas story, in the days of Caesar Augustus. That's Gaius Octavian. Uh, we generally call him the first Caesar. You know what he changed his name to? Augustus, the great one. Uh, we have some leaders like that today who trump themselves over others, right? No pun intended. And then there was Herod, right? From Jerusalem's perspective, Herod was the ruler. Guess what name he gave himself? Herod the Great. 
These people were full of themselves and full of power. Quirinius was governor, and Luke goes on and on, and God bypasses all of that. And his son is born in a manger. If you ever get to Bethlehem and we go, we go to the shepherd's field. And we sit there and we sing Silent Night in April, it's beautiful. And we just imagine that choir of angels as God pulled the screen wide open and there was that majestic, you know, singing of angels and peace on earth, goodwill to men. And uh, in Bethlehem, you can visit the Herodian. It was Herod's palace. Uh, Herod built all his palaces on mountains. If you go to Israel, you go to Masada. That was a summer palace. Well, uh, his palace in Bethlehem, there were no hills there, no mountains. So they actually moved dirt, literally, in, in the ancient world, and built him a mountain and then built a palace on it. You talk about something being possible with God, but impossible with man. Remember when Jesus said that if you had enough faith, you could say to that mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea, and if you don't doubt the things that you say, you'll have the things that you say? That has nothing to do with whatever we say happens, that our words release power. Jesus was saying, you could say to that mountain, you could look at Herod's palace, and if you had enough faith to believe that it would be cast in the sea, that it would be done for you, and that's exactly what happened. All these leaders have come and gone and a baby in a manger has become the single greatest figure in human history. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. He who is mighty has done great things for me. There's so much humility here. She doesn't think there's anything special about her. Friday night, Rodrigo Rodriguez was here. He's one of the best classical guitar players in the world. We had a great time. And when we were out to lunch, Rodrigo shared a story with me. He's from Ecuador. And the guitar was his God, it was his way out. He was gonna to make tons of money and you know, drive expensive cars and the guitar was his God. And um, his agent invited him to church. He said, I'm not going to church. Somebody made up God so they could you know, lord it over people. I want nothing to do with God. And the agent said, well, I'm not gonna be your agent if you don't come to church. So he said, if I come to church and get it over with, is that it? He goes, the guy goes, yeah, he goes, all right, I'll come to church. And he went to church, it was Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith was preaching, and the next week his agent didn't come, but he went back to church, he went for four weeks and finally became a Christian. And seven years went by and God called him in the full-time music ministry, and he said, Bob, I was playing in small churches, hospital rooms, churches of 20,000, God was doing amazing things. And he said, I was playing at this church of 20,000 people, and the worship pastor took me out to lunch after. And he said, when I was out to lunch, I was feeling pretty good about myself, and and we were eating, it was a hole in the wall Mexican restaurant, and there was a guy there playing the guitar. And he said, I gotta tell you, he goes, I know you think I'm really good. He said, on a scale of one to 10, I'm a four. I'm like, come on, Rodrigo. He's like, yeah, I'm a four. He goes, that guy in a hole in the wall Mexican restaurant was an eight. And people were throwing quarters in his cup. He was making $30 a day. And he goes, God spoke to me and said, Rodrigo, wherever I take you around the world, never forget this day, because I raise people up and I bring them low. And my favor rests on you. And if there were more people in ministry with that spirit, more people uh, that serve God with that spirit, it would be wonderful. We are not self-made men and women. And if you think you are, tell me how you aligned everything to be born in America at its most prosperous time 
the most prosperous country in the world. It's unthinkable. It's God's favor. And she ends by saying, he scattered the proud, and he's filled the hungry, and he sent the rich away empty. That was Leah's video, right? Riches cloud our view of what God's really doing. Again, all these august people. God comes to a manger. Uh, there's another song we sing at Christmas, right? Uh, Gloria and ex Shelley's Deo, glory to God in the highest. Well, this story is really glory to God who came in the lowest. Philippians, God who was equal in the Trinity, you know, didn't count it robbery to be equal to God, but divested himself and became like us. And not only did he come like us, God was at the top of the ladder. He came all the way down to the final rung. You know, no one's lower than Jesus. Seriously. If you went to a refugee camp somewhere in the world today, Jesus was a refugee. Remember they went into Egypt when Herod killed the innocents? He was born in occupied territory. He was poor. He wasn't white-skinned. I mean, no one is lower than Jesus. The shepherds were the first to hear about his birth. They were temple shepherds. They were unclean. This is the upside-down kingdom that God came to bring. And this is why through the centuries, the poor and the weak have become strong and rich. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. This final verse, again, so prophetic. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy. What's staggering about that verse is Mary doesn't live in Israel. She lives in Palestine. The Romans, when they took occupation of Israel, they changed the name to Palestine. It was a slur because their arch enemies were the Philistines, so they called it Palestine. In fact, if you look at the maps in your Bible, it'll say Palestine. And it was Palestine until 1948 when David Ben-Gurion stood up and said, this land that I now stand on shall be called Israel. No nation has ever gone out of existence and come back into existence, but God said they would. And Mary was living in that promise that he would bless, not Palestine, but Israel. And we remember the covenant he made with Abraham. Jesus said, Abraham longed to see this day, and he has. And on and on, this 15-year-old girl is espousing wisdom, and no doubt filled with the Holy Spirit, that staggers the ages and spawns thousands of songs. And as I said, there's more songs and art and frescoes and music about Jesus than any figure that's ever lived. But this is the song that started it all. And here's the question. What's your song? What's your song this Christmas? Because everybody has a song. Everybody needs a song. There has to be something in your heart. There has to be a reason why you're getting up. It can't be physical things. It can't be money. It can't be promotion. That's all going to end. But I'm here to tell you, God has put a song in our hearts. What's your song? What's your hope? What's your dream? What makes you get out of bed? What makes your heart beat? I want to close with my favorite Christmas song. Emily's going to sing it. It's her Christmas present to me. She didn't know that. I'll come back and make a quick comment. Let's listen to the song.
So I'll stand. So I just want to end with this idea that peace on earth is not a reality. We all know something's wrong with our world. We know something's wrong with us, right? Look at our homes, look at our lives. There's something wrong with all this. And we all know it won't be made right until Jesus comes the second time. He, he's destined to come twice, first to die, and the second time to set things right. The answer to that song is when Jesus comes again. That's why the early church, look in your Bible, never celebrated Christmas, never celebrated Easter. They were looking for the coming of Christ, a Greek word, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because the only prophecies left in the Bible is the second coming when he sets things right.